All right, good morning. Glad to see everybody. I'm glad the first five rows have filled up a little bit, what's affectionately now known as the splash zone. So it is, uh, it is September, which is hard to believe. Football season is in full swing. For you Aggies, you got to watch um, a slaughter on Thursday, you beat this team from Louisiana. It's not LSU, LSU's playing tonight. So I'm excited, we've got some football season going in September, the weather's gonna start to cool off down to a brisk 90 degrees, I'm sure at some point. And uh, in schools, you know, back in session uh, for both Lamar and, and Fort Bend, and uh, it's gone so well that we've decided to take tomorrow off. So you send your kids off to school, and it's like, nah, we're gonna have a trial run, we're gonna start over again. So, uh, but all the teachers are like, yes, we got tomorrow off, right? And so. Uh, we're in this series of, of maturity, and one of the marks of maturity is this process of being sent and sending is an essential mark of maturity. So you have kids, and you know they come home for summer break, and uh, they're home all summer, and you're like, get me out of here, get them out of here, and then you send them off to school, and that's a process that happens throughout, say, I don't know, 15 years or so, and then they graduate, and you send them off to college or you send them off into the workforce, wherever it is. And then another season of life comes and as maturity moves us along, you send them off and you send them off into marriage, right? Uh, that's just the way that things are or you send them off into uh, mature adulthood, okay? Maturity means that we aren't meant to live with mom and dad forever. Okay, so if you're 40 and playing Fortnite and living in mom's basement and eating Cheetos, we got some conversations to have, okay? Maturity means moving along in those stages of life. There's no specific, hey, social pressures. There's no, at this age, you have to do this. So when you hear me say maturity, don't hear me say perfection. That's, that's a very big distinction we need to make in this whole series is maturity, because some of us in our personality types, we hear mature and it's like, I've gotta get this done, and then I have to move here, and I have to move here, and all of a sudden, what is meant to liberate you and to free you up by the gospel is now law, and you hear it as perfection. And no one is talking about perfection in this series. No one. It's maturity, okay? So being sent and sending is an essential mark of maturity. Now, I'm not making this up. This isn't some super spiritual observation. We, as a society here in America, have said, by the time you're 26, it's time to get off of mom and dad's insurance, okay? We've kind of set this specific season of life where it's like, okay, it's time, it's time to move on. Our society has said, you have spent a quarter of a century with these two people who have spent all of their money and time on you, and now it's time to take what you have learned along the way and go out and learn how much you don't actually know and learn some more, okay? So being sent is an essential mark of maturity. Sending is an essential mark of maturity. We as a society have said at 26, mom and dad, you're free from insurance needs. Now they're gonna call you and be like, hey, I'm broke. Okay, send me money, all right? No one's freeing you of that, okay? I'm not speaking from experience. But at 26, you don't have to pay for their insurance anymore. Our society has said you've spent a quarter of your life learning, you've been sent out, you had a family, and now you've spent another quarter of your life taking care of these little rodents, and now you send them off, okay? And, and that, that is what our society has said. Sending is an essential mark of maturity. So there is this uh, learning 
and this laboring, this process of learning and laboring that is an essential mark of maturity. And this process of learning and laboring is what we call discipleship. Very simple. What it means to be a disciple is to learn and to labor. We can sum up this process of learning and laboring in this one word of disciple. And we've spent the last four weeks taking a stab at what it means to be a mature Christian and how do we identify a maturing Christian. And the fifth and final mark is making disciples. Making disciples is what we see as the fifth and I'm sure we could probably come up with 20 other marks of a mature Christian, but what we have said is these are very important things you ought to see in your life to be maturing, and making disciples is it. And there's a lot of ways, just like Lance so eloquently put uh, this morning, what we often at the Grove here define disciple as is in, is in terms of identity, a family of missionary servants. And that's so huge and so helpful. I, I want to just kind of lift out from the text this morning so you can see, I'm not making this up, and you can see the, the, uh, that it's right here in Scripture for us. It's very, very simple, okay? So look in Matthew chapter 9, and I want you to see how we're just going to lift this definition right out of the text in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and, okay, mark this, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, so he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is doing. <clears throat> Secondly, and he's healing every disease and every affliction. So what's Jesus doing? He's proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God is here. And he's meeting needs. He's healing. Okay, now that's what Jesus is doing. Now let's skim down chapter 10 and look in verse 1. You want to take a guess at what Jesus' disciples are doing. Let's look. Chapter 10, verse 1. And Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. And this is copied and pasted from chapter 9, verse 35. What is it? And to heal every disease and every affliction. So Jesus' disciples see him do this, and now they do it. They learned it, and now there's a laboring. Now look down in verse 7 of chapter 10. And Jesus sends them out. Well, let's start in verse 5. We'll get context. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere. That's important, that word go. You're going to see that at the end of Matthew. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this is a short-term mission trip. And proclaim as you go, saying what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there it is. Laboring and learning. As Jesus' disciples are around him and they become like him, they labor and they learn. They learn and they labor and they end up looking like Jesus himself. Now, there couldn't be a more clear statement than in chapter 10, verse 25. So look in chapter 10, verse 25, and you'll see this again. Let's start in verse 24. Disciple, Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. Disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple, there it is, there's our word, disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Okay? 
So there it is, like his master. So there it is in discipleship, we become like Jesus. We are conformed to the image of Jesus. We are around him, we sound like him, we are hopefully carbon copies of him. That's what discipleship is. We end up looking like Jesus and then we end up living like him. And so as we live like him, we learn and we labor. Oh my goodness, how more Southern Baptist preaching can you get? We got nothing but L's here this morning, all right? My word, I've never done this in my life. I'm not a, okay. It, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. There it is. So if you have teachers, you have what? Students. If you have students, you have what? Learners. Right? It is enough for the servant to be like his master. If you have a master, you have a what? A servant. If you have a servant, you have a what? A laborer. Right? So there it is. It's all over the place here in Matthew. So if teachers have learners, then the disciple is a learner. And if masters have servants, then the disciple is a laborer. And a disciple is someone who learns from another as they labor. They've spent so much time with a rabbi or with a teacher. They know what his footprints look like. They know what it's like to have his dust in front of them. And what you and I like to do here in America is to learn and then labor. We like to learn, read the books, and then labor. We just had our third child a month ago. I was reminded of that this morning as probably one of the worst nights of sleep in the last month. That's the last time I preached, my truck broke down beforehand. So that's just the way it is, right? So uh, anyway, all right, whatever, free, free information. So uh, 10 years ago when we had Audrey, you, um, you know, you're in total shock. It's like, I'm having a kid. Okay. So, uh, and then you go to the hospital and they're like, Hey, we got these classes for you. Okay. We'll sign up for these classes. And they all sound like a good idea. You know, you go to these classes and there's little plastic babies and you're like already nervous because you're going to drop the plastic baby. And it's like, what am I doing with a real one? You know, and it's just, it's intense. And, and then like game day comes and it's time to give birth. Okay. And uh, I remember Kelly was having a pretty intense labor with, uh, with Audrey, which would be foreshadowing things to come. So uh, pretty intense labor. And, and I, I'm like watching this and the, 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 um, the doctor comes in, the anesthesiologist comes in and he's running late. We're in Pennsylvania, small town, two-story hospital. I would never recommend that. Okay, so he comes walking in, he's late and he's whistling zippity-doo-dah. And I'm like... Just like, we're 12 hours in. I'm like, dude, come on, man. And, and, uh, and then he pulls out like the needle and it's like this big, right? And, uh, and he sticks Kelly and Kelly's got back problems. He sticks the, the needle and he's already run too late. And, I, and I'm there holding Kelly like this and Kelly's saying, ow, ow, ow. And I'm thinking, you're killing her. You're killing her. You're killing her. And the nurse says, sir, why don't you have a seat right here? Why don't you just sit right here? So I sat down. I did. I said, because it was nothing like what I had learned. I learned through labor. So this third one, I fell asleep when we checked in at one o'clock. Like, I was like, I know this shindig, you know, like, no big deal. You go over here and if you need me, you'll yell at me, I'll wake up. But Kelly took pictures of me falling asleep, you know. So, yeah, but that's what happens, right? You, you, you labor and you learn. You learn as you go. But the danger is we just think if I can do one more book study, then I'll be ready to go. 
But the reality is, if you haven't done what you've learned, you haven't learned it. If you haven't been obedient to the truths you've read, you haven't learned it, and you're not going to learn it until you do it. And that's why there's this learning and laboring. And the problem is, we don't always get around to laboring. But to be a disciple of Jesus is on-the-job training. Not perfection, training. It's his job to make us perfect, and he'll do it. If you'll trust him, he'll do it. He'll do it. Jesus sends them out in pairs to make more disciples, to make more disciples, and to make more disciples. And so if you look in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, notice he gives, or let's start in verse 2. Matthew makes a list of the names of Jesus' 12 uh, disciples who then mature, and he calls them apostles. Okay, and here they are. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Okay, do you see that? So there's a name, and then and, and then another name. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And then semicolon, James. So there's group one. Group two, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So there's group number two. Okay, so look, let's scroll on to the next one. Uh, where are we here? Uh, Zebedee, Philip, and Bartholomew. Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. Now, that's interesting. Matthew wrote this, and he identifies himself as Matthew, the tax collector. We'll come back to that in a second. So there's groups three and four. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. There's group five. And then lastly, Simon the Zealot and uh, Judas, group six. Isn't that interesting? Jesus sent out the one who would betray him, and Matthew puts that. Jesus sent out lost people. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. I'll just leave that there. Let you figure that out. So Jesus groups them in groups of twos and he sends them out. And he sends them out to multiply. And these, these two go and they make disciples and then those two go and make disciples and it spreads and it spreads and it spreads. And it's super important to realize here when we talk about maturity, we're talking about addition and multiplication. We're not talking about subtraction and division. And isn't it interesting? Jesus sets up a, you ready for this, Lance? A missional community. <laughs> We're not making this stuff up. He sets up a missional community and he, he groups them together and they live life together. And then within that missional community, you ready for this, Lance? He sets up a neighborhood group. No, not a neighborhood group. He sets up a growth group. Two by two. He sends them out. And they mature and they multiply, and they go. And I'm just going to get on a soapbox just for 30 seconds. One of the things I find myself saying, and it just, it's an indicator that we have growth yet to do in multiplication and addition and understanding disciple, is we talk about our groups getting so big, we've got like 30 people, and we say it's time to split. You know what happens when a family splits? Devastation. Divorce. Healthy families don't split. They what? Send out. They multiply. Right? They add. They multiply. They don't divide. They don't subtract. Let's, let, listen, the way we talk about what we do here is important in the words and the categories we have. So 
Next time, if it's like, hey, our group's good too big, we got, we got to divide, we got to split. No, 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 no. No, we need to pray that laborers are lifted up from lost people. We're going to see us here in a second. And that God will send us out to start a new group. And we'll celebrate it because that's what families do, right? That's what families do. I'll end my soapbox there. Ultimately, we want to press on towards maturity by making disciples. And if we want to be like Jesus, we need to look at how he did that and modeled making disciples. So look in chapter 9, verse 36. And Jesus is going to mix two metaphors here. Verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Okay? So what do sheep do? They do lots of things. We're going to hear next week, sheep hear my voice. They follow the shepherd. They learn the shepherd's voice. Jesus looks out and he sees crowds full of learners. Everyone here today is a learner, right? And then he's going to mix it with another metaphor and he's going to use the word labor or harvest. And he says to his disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So there it is again, another metaphor of harvest, Lord of the harvest. And what you need to realize is that everyone here, no matter if you are a believer or not, you are a disciple of someone. You are a learner and a laborer of someone. Jesus looks out at the crowds and where, where is he? Verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages and synagogues. That's about as all-encompassing as it gets. Jesus went through downtown Houston. He went through Richmond and he went through churches. And what do he see? Learners and laborers everywhere. Harassed and helpless everywhere. Why? Because the city... You, you will go into a city and a city will have expectations and cultures that will crush you and devastate you. You will go into villages and neighborhoods and there will be traditions and practices that you can't live up to and they'll crush you. Oh, and my goodness, we will go into churches and we will hear things that are not about Jesus. They are not about how God sets people free. And it... And, and, they, and Matthew says Jesus had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. So why is being a disciple of Jesus better than being a disciple of your favorite, I don't know, social media influencer, your favorite YouTuber, Oprah, Michael Jordan, whoever it is for you. Why is being a disciple, a learner and laborer of Jesus more, better than being a disciple of whoever it is that has your influence throughout the week. Because as you learn and labor with Jesus, you discover that underneath being a disciple is being a son. As you learn and labor with Jesus, you understand and you, you realize over time that being a disciple of Jesus, underneath that is that you've been brought into a family. The foundation for learning and laboring is that God in Christ has brought you in as a son. Notice these two words in verse 36. What did Jesus do? He saw and he had compassion. 
Now, these two words are not throwaway words. They show up earlier in the chapter in in Matthew chapter 9. I want you to flip back in Matthew chapter 9, and I want you to look in verse 9. Okay? And you're going to see that this is really close to Matthew's heart because seeing, Jesus seeing and having compassion is something Matthew has already experienced personally himself. Matthew 9 verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he what? He saw, he saw what? A man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now let's just stop here. Matthew was a tax collector. He was in cahoots with the Roman government and he was a traitor to the Jewish people. And there were two levels of um, being a, 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 in, in taxing at that time. You had like the guys who were like the managers and, and they stayed out of public sight. And then you had guys who had to sit at a booth and collect taxes. And they would not only collect taxes, they would over collect and take some in for themselves. And that was this guy, Matthew. All this shame in front of people. And here's Matthew at this tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So when Jesus saw Matthew, he saw him and what? Mercy. Saw compassion. He saw him. He loved him. And these aren't throwaway words. Because in a very similar context in in Luke 15, Jesus is around tax collectors and sinners and he tells a series of three stories. The first one is a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and he loses one and he what? Leaves the 99 and he goes to get the one. And then he tells another story of a woman who has uh, 10 coins and she loses one and she turns the whole house upside down, sweeping and mopping and looking everywhere to, and cleaning and organizing to find this one. And when she does, she, like the shepherd, says, let's rejoice for what was lost I found. And then Jesus tells another story, and you probably know it maybe, in Luke 15, this story of the prodigal sons. And there's this man who has two sons and the younger son comes to him and says, Dad, I want the inheritance that's coming to me. What that means, translation is, Dad, I want your stuff, but I wish you were dead. When do you get inheritance? Your dad's dead, right? So the father at that point then says, okay, he gives it to him. So he takes the inheritance, he gives it to his son. Luke, Luke uses the word bios. It's literally the word uh, for life. So the father tears his life apart. He gives it to the son. The son hangs around and he sells the land, which get this. That means he puts it up for sale in the open market, hangs around at Starbucks for a few weeks, hangs around and, uh, around everywhere while the father's being shamed. The house is on the market, or the land is on the market, gets a buyer. That buyer now has right to what that family has. So a stranger has been brought in. So the dad's been shamed again. The son takes the money, goes off to a foreign land to live around Gentiles. So a completely different ethnicity. He's completely around uh, strangers, and he's living it up with his inheritance. 
around prostitutes, spending his money on extravagant living. Hard times come, as they usually do. This little boy didn't know, this young man didn't know that. And what happens? He loses it all. Right? He loses it all. And he starts eating with pigs, or wishes he could even eat with pigs. And he comes to himself and he says, how many of my dad's, important word here, labors, have more than what I have right now? I know what I'll do. I'll go to dad and I'll tell dad, hey dad, um, let, me, let me come in and, and work for you. Let me come in. So he comes up with a plan. And he begins to head home. And I want you to look in Luke 15, verse 20. Let's see if we can throw this up here on the screen. You can just see it on the screen. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father, what? Saw him and felt compassion. He ran and embraced and kissed him. Now, I just want to, just real quickly here, give you a little cultural um, background for what's going on here. A lot of times we picture the father is sitting on the front porch waiting for the son to come home. Let me tell you, this father has no indication this son's coming home. This son has given every indication, I'm not coming back, dad. You're dead to me. I hate you. I take your stuff and not you. I'm never coming back. So the father has just moved on this life. And in Jewish society at that time, they had what was called the kazaza ceremony. The kazaza ceremony was, was designed for a Jewish man who would take his inheritance and go live among the Gentiles and squander it and want to come back. And what would happen is, the, when the, the man would come back to the town, the, the um, residents would take um, a ceramic pot and they would go up to the, to the man and they would slam it on the ground. They'd pick up a shard and point it at him and say, you are cut off. Now, if we're not told that the father's sitting there on the front porch. That, that's kind of an assumption we make. I, I want to maybe submit to you, the father is working around his house. If you can picture the father sitting on the front porch looking out, you can also picture the father working around his house going day to day. And he hears a commotion. And he sees people walking past him. And he notices a guy walking out with a pot. And at that moment, the father turns and he sees his son a long way off. And he has compassion on him because what's about to happen? Shame on the son. And the whole time, the father's been shamed. And what does the dad do? He lifts up his, he, he shames himself, he shows his legs, lifts up his robe, runs and forearms the guy that's got the pot and runs and says, my son, my son, my son. And he embraces him and he kisses him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to be brought in with that kind of seeing and compassion. And when Jesus looks out to the masses, that's what he sees. If that doesn't move you, I don't know what will. There is a flow here. If we can't see them, we won't love them. And if we can't love them, we won't pray for them. And if we can't pray for them, we won't win them. And if we can't win them, we won't send them. It all starts with this here. If we can't see them, we won't have compassion 
on them. So listen, I get it out of sight, out of mind. We're so busy in life, running through the grind, out of sight, out of mind. But we've got, we can't just come up with excuses. This is ownership, right? We've got to own this. Man, we, we've got to take this and we've got to own it. And we've got to say, listen, I'm not going to learn and I'm not going to labor with my culture so much. I'm going to actually slow down. I'm going to look around me and see what is out there. What are the needs around me? And when we fail to see people and have compassion for them, we don't have a time management problem. We have a gospel maturity problem. So here's what I try to do personally just to, um, I, I'm in no means perfect on this. And if you ask me to get up and give you a perfect story, I, I can't do it. But um, when I'm in a crowded place, I ask God, just open my eyes. I mean, I usually do most of my shopping on Amazon now, so I'm not really sitting in the store anymore and waiting for Kelly to finish shopping. Um, but when I'm in a crowded place, I say, Lord, open my eyes. Uh, something else I'll do is I'll go over to Morton Cemetery in Richmond. And this is morbid and this is crazy. You're never going to look at me the same. I'm being vulnerable with you right now. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll just walk. I'll walk through Morton Cemetery. Jane Longsbury there, she's got a street in my neighborhood. Those people have been gone for a long time. Most of them died in a flood. They didn't know it was coming. And I'll preach that to myself. Stephen, you, you, you're not grand tomorrow. Look out and see all, how many dead people are in here? All of them. All of these people. And one day, One day, I'll be there. And it's not just, it's, oh, look, I'm not trying to give you some kind of guilt thing. There's no, no guilt here. I'm just saying this is one of the practices that I'll do because what I have found in me is not that, that hey, life is all level and we're all going to the same place. What I realize is as I look out and I ask, Lord, give me compassion, is one day, all of us, or one day the people we know who don't know Christ are going into a Christless eternity. not just six feet under. But that they don't know Christ. And so if we can't see people as Jesus sees them, then we won't have compassion for them. And if we can't have compassion for them, we won't pray for them. And to those of you here this morning that aren't too sure about Christianity, if, if you've never heard about Jesus, or you're just kind of checking out what, what is this Christian thing here, maybe you've been burned by church. I know I, I have. This is at the heart of what a mature Christian feels towards you. Seeing, wanting to enter into where you are harassed and helpless and not coming from compassion within ourselves but the compassion that we have experienced from a dad who would come and rescue us from shame. That is the disposition that a mature Christian has towards you. So if we can't see him, we won't love him and if we can't love him, we won't what? Pray for them. What does Jesus say in Matthew 9, 38? Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. Not just pray, but pray earnestly. Now this is an easy term for me to get in, um, and probably for most of you who've owned a home, whenever you go to buy a home, what's the first thing you do after you write a contract? You put down what? Earnest money. When you sell your home, you expect the guy who's buying your house to do what? 
to put down earnest money, to show that I am actually going to carry this process through. I'm earnest about this. I'm earnest. I'm not, so not just, not just pray that the Lord would send out labors, but pray earnestly. Put some skin in the game. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, and compared to the amount of harvest, there are few laborers. So here's the process. Put some skin on the game by praying such that it costs you. Take compassion that you have towards the harvest and pour it out as passion in prayer. Everybody take your phone out. Take your phone out. All right? This is what I want us to do this week. Right here. Take your phone out. On your phone, I want you to go into your, your clock and I want you to set an alarm. All right? You there? Do it for every day, not just tomorrow. I want you to put in at 9.38 a.m. or p.m. If you're still sleeping at 9.30, I mean, we can have that conversation too, but 9.38 a.m. And I want you to put in pray earnestly and leave it for the next three weeks. And when that thing goes off, I want you to stop what you're doing and pray earnestly for your neighbors, your networks, and the nations. See if it doesn't break your heart. I mean, either Jesus is right here or he's not. I mean, we're either just like wishful thinking here or it's not. I mean, I'm going to take him at his word that the process where we get laborers is to go to the throne of God. So... 9.38, I want you to put that. If you're a 10 o'clock person, you can do 10.02. That's in Luke 10, 10 2. It's the same thing. But 9.38, okay? And here's how God works. As you pray for people, at some point, the Spirit will move in your heart to go and share the gospel with those people. But I also want you to notice this. It's not just pray earnestly. It's pray earnestly what? To whom? The Lord of the harvest. Here's the great thing about it. It's whose harvest? The Lord's. He's sovereign over it. You, you have a conversation with your neighbor, someone at work, and you're like, duh, 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 Jesus. You know, I don't know what to say. And they're like, hey, you know what? I've kind of, I had, I had a little curiosity about him. Oh, really? Because God's already been working, and you're just kind of being carried along here in the process. Listen, if... Uh, I'm not a farmer, okay? Uh, but if, if the crop fails, who looks bad? The farmer. Do you think God's going to let his name get dragged in the mud? No way. No way. So we have assurance here that there will be a harvest. Jesus did not die and God be like, oh, well, kind of hope this works. It is his harvest. It is his good news and his gospel. So if we can't win them, we won't send them. And you say, well, where's winning in here? I see seeing and compassion and praying. Where is winning in here? Where do we see winning? Well, that's a good question. And here is how I shall answer it. It is implied in their request to send out laborers. Think about, it's easy for us to think about here in this room, but think about where Jesus said this. They didn't have Bible colleges. They didn't have seminaries. They didn't have other churches. They didn't have nonprofit organizations. Where did you get laborers from? 
You go to the throne of grace and you ask for laborers, and then what? The laborers for the harvest come where? From the harvest. I said three years ago, when we started this church three, four years ago, I said, you know what? Probably some of our workers that we'll see the Lord raise up are hungover from the night before and drinking. Shortly after that, God saved Tim Wetzel. <laughs> Can you believe it? That's the best part of Christianity. That's the absolute best part. I mean, my goodness, this is lame. This is absolute lame if we don't see people come to faith in Jesus and then them sent right back out to go and make disciples. If you don't think it's the best part of Christianity, you've never had the joy of seeing people, someone come to faith. Nothing better than seeing someone come to faith. And Matthew knows this. What was he described himself as? Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus does ministry a lot different than I would have. Jesus sends Matthew after Matthew comes to know Jesus and he sends him right back into what? Being a tax collector. He sends him right back into tax audits, books, and loads of money and says, now take the life change you've experienced and go do that differently. Not me. I would have been like, hey, Matthew, let's get you signed up for a six-week class on the gospel and then we'll get you connected. You can go to coffee. You can like pick Starbucks or like mugs. Get together with a guy. Text back and forth and be like, man, I can't make it this week. Oh, it's okay. Show grace to him. And then, like, and then, and then like do that for like a month. And then like, let's try to make sure Matthew shows up on Sunday mornings. You let me come up here, dude. Okay. <laughs> I mean, but what, and Jesus does all this in one chapter. Do you see how we're not about multiplying the church? Do you realize the gospel, the good news of the gospel is powerful enough to actually change people? And we got to believe that. So where has God put you? Where has God got you right now? What if this church thing is all about you going as a teacher at Frost? Are you going to work downtown? Are you being a stay-at-home mom? Or um, your missional, your neighborhood group? Whatever it is that you guys are about. What if church is actually all about us taking that and bringing the gospel into it, getting just beat up, and, and then also seeing wins, and then coming back on a Sunday morning and celebrating those? And then getting sent right back out after we lick our, win, our wounds and doing it all again. What if we gather back here on Sunday mornings to report back stories of winds from the harvest and to celebrate the Lord of the harvest and actually making disciples? Congrove has 17,000 people in it. I've prayed for years. Lord, would you just give us one missional community for every thousand people in my neighborhood. Lord, move me away. Come back. And now there's two. <laughs> Thanks, God. You didn't really need me. <laughs> Thanks. Why don't you look around your little block where you live and see and have compassion? Because if you can't see them, you won't love them. And if you can't love them, you won't pray for them. If you can't pray for them, you won't win them. And if you can't win them, we won't send them. And if we can't send them, Maybe we're not as mature 
as we think we are. Let's pray. Father, we trust in your good hand and we trust that um, whatever is said here today is tailor-made for everyone in their seats at some level or another. And we trust the application of this stuff. I know I have a long way to go, but my hope is not in my growth. My hope is in my God. And we pray that, Lord, you have told us to pray earnestly towards you. So we pray earnestly, Lord, that you would send out laborers our neighbors who don't yet know you, who labor and learn all week long, but not from you. And so God, we pray that you'd open the door for the gospel, that we'd see people and we'd send them out with the joy that we ourselves have experienced. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.